Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Radicals in Conversation, a podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. In 2015, students at the University of Cape Town demanded the removal of a statue of Cecil Rhodes, the imperialist racist business magnate from their campus. The battle cry, Rhodes Must Fall, heralded an international movement calling for the decolonisation of the world's universities. Over the last three years, this movement has grown, voicing a radical call for a new era of education and an end to coloniality both inside and outside the classroom. We're very lucky to be in a nice air-conditioned studio today with two guests who are both deeply engaged with this important work as academics and activists. Gaminda Bambra, Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies at the University of Sussex, and Dahlia Gabriel, a PhD student at the London School of Economics and an editor at Navarra Media who was formerly involved in the Roads Must Fall campaign at Oxford University. And Gaminda and Dahlia are both editors of the new book, Decolonising the University, which is being published by Pluto on the 20th of August. Here today from Pluto are myself, Chris Brown, and Florence Stencil-Wade. So, Gaminda and Dahlia, thanks both very much for taking the time to come on the show today. Some of our listeners will be, I'm sure, pretty familiar with the subject that we're going to be discussing, but perhaps we can start with the basics. Um, Decolonising is now widely used as a framework, but what does it mean, or how can it be interpreted, when we're talking about decolonising education or decolonising the university? So yeah, I think for me, the term decolonizing is very useful because it literally has, in the word, it has a reference to colonialism. And I think what we've seen in the past sort of five decades is this gradual erasure and effacement of the role of empire in shaping the world that we have today, and also the ongoing impacts of kind of imperial relations. And I think that The idea of decolonising is really about recognising the role of that historical, economic, political, cultural system of coloniality in shaping contemporary power relations and really working to undo those um, contemporary oppressions with that in mind and starting from that starting point. And I also want to mention here that my conception of coloniality absolutely includes chattel slavery, the transatlantic slave trade. I think often that gets lost, even though it's absolutely, again, integral to the foundation of kind of contemporary capitalism. And I think it's also about recognising that the emergence of global capitalism, the emergence of, you know, the contemporary economic order is inseparable from the functionings of empire and racism. Again, seeing sort of conversations around, you know, things like progressive nationalism and stuff like that that are emerging in the UK left right now, that really shows a lack of understanding of how Britain came to be what it is today and what Britain is and what the consequences of a so-called progressive nationalism could mean for the rest of the world and how that can't really be part of any radical move forward. And for me, it's also really about, and I think this is something that, again, has been lost, particularly since the dawn of multiculturalism, is um, internationalism, is this idea of, you know, really, yes, we are located in the local, but the local is, of course, inflected by the global, and really understanding that any kind of anti-racist struggle, anti-capitalist struggle that we are having in this country is absolutely staked in things like the liberation of Palestine, in um, the struggle of indigenous communities, in the resistance to political and economic imperialism in the global south. And we really have to reconnect and reground ourselves as part of this transnational class because the system, as we know from its colonial origins, is transnational. So it would make very little sense to not shape our resistance to be transnational in that way as well. 
And calls to decolonize the university, I think, have to recognize both the space and function of universities. So historically, universities have been part of the project of the social reproduction of elites. And it's not until the post-war period, really, that universities began to be transformed into institutions that were much more directed towards an understanding of the public, of mass higher education. And there was a shift to what uh, we have come to call the public university, the university oriented to the education of citizens. And I think that that university has been under threat since 2010 with the reforms that occurred within England specifically with the introduction of fees and then the tripling of fees. And that shift from the public university to the neoliberal university has, in a way, brought to the fore some of these issues much more directly because one of the ways in which the neoliberal university has sought to address the calls for equality has been through questions of diversity. What has been sidestepped in that is any address of the inequalities. And one thing to note here is that up until about the early 2000s, universities were part of the amelioration of socioeconomic inequalities, that generally universities were part of a social democratic state which worked towards the address of these sorts of inequalities. But since that time universities as institutions have started to exacerbate those inequalities. And so those of us who are committed to social justice issues more generally have to ask ourselves what the university is about, what its function continues to be and what space we occupy within it. So I think the decolonising move has to be understood within that broader context, has to ask the question of why the public university, whilst being committed to questions of equality and citizenship more generally, nonetheless still failed its BME students, for example. So the BME attainment gap has been consistent throughout this period. It's still not being addressed. I don't think it will be addressed any better through the types of institutions we're moving towards at the moment. And that decolonising the university would have to address those sorts of issues alongside the broader issues that Dahlia mentioned earlier. You kind of touched on it a little bit already in terms of how diversity has been the main focus of the neoliberal institution. But how does one then decolonize a university? In a sense, there's a few different strands to this, isn't there? Iconography, in, in a sense. I mean, the, the Roads Must Fall campaign in Cape Town and in Oxford, that would be one, I guess, strand of that. Uh, curriculum as well, representation. I mean, Dali, perhaps you want to tell us a little bit about your background to this, what informed your chapter in the book. The situation in Oxford, I think, was really, really interesting. And I think it brought to the fore a lot of underlying contradictions and tensions. And, you know, we might come on to this later, but how attempts to decolonise an institution like Oxford might mean the abolition of Oxford. I don't really know. It's a very, it almost is set up to fail in a sense. But what I would say about the statue that I thought was really important was that I was having a conversation with with a friend of mine who at the time was working kind of more closely with the university management. And one thing she said was, if you guys had gone about this the right way, as in if you'd kind of been a bit more strategic or kind of um, not been as public, that statue would have been down today. And that really made me think about what the purpose of bringing that statue down was. And I realised that I would much rather the scale of like national and international conversation and recognition that happened and the statue fundamentally then didn't come down rather than it came down but no one heard about it because the first step is recognition but I think that it's a really interesting framework as well because as we were talking about how kind of diversity has been the main framework with which we've thought about race 
particularly sort of since the dawn of like multiculturalism as a kind of state practice, as a state doctrine, that within that framework, there's this expectation that the fundamental goal is to enter institutions like Oxford, is to enter and excel within institutions like Oxford. And I think what people found incredibly jarring about the Rhodes Must Fall movement was that this was actually British students of colour joining and expressing solidarity with students in the global south to actually say no we have a right to actually enter this institution and literally change its foundations and literally contest the the infrastructure literally but also pedagogically um, and in terms of its curriculum and I think that entering these spaces not as willful subjects but as transformative forces was incredibly jarring. And I think when you look at a lot of the media representation, there was very much this idea of why aren't they grateful? We've welcomed them with open arms into our institutions like Oxford and this is how they treat us. And, you know, can we ever really actually belong? Because, you know, it was assumed that, for example, none of us were British, even though, you know, half of us were born here. Like Stephen Andam said, we wear our passports on our faces. You know, citizenship is not just about your papers. Um, There's a lot of other things going on there. So I think the contradictions and the failings of multiculturalism and diversity in terms of how they efface power um, as being central to the conversation about race really came to the fore in the response to Rose Must Fall. And I think even though that statue is still standing there, Um, Hopefully it won't be for long. But even though it's still standing there, I think there's so much rich text for analysis that came out of what happened when students of colour challenged the infrastructure of Oxford, particularly because of, as you mentioned earlier, um, Gaminda, like the particular role of Oxford as well in empire really was striking at the heart of empire. And I think the response to it tells us so much about Brexit Britain, as it were. (laughs) I mean, you kind of answered the next question there, which was, you know, can the decolonial demand ever be fully met within the institution? Perhaps not then. Um, (laughs) Well, if I can just interject there, I mean, partly would you ask that question about gender inequality? Mm -hmm. So it's not clear that gender inequality can be fully met within the demands of any institution, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't work towards it. And I think the problem is less the institution than how institutions are configured at any particular time. And also I think it has to be understood how it is that we understand both the past past struggles and how they get repackaged for our contemporary times in part to neuter or negate their effectiveness in the past so I think the critique of multiculturalism whilst there may be some place for it one also has to recognize that many of the struggles that took place in what we call the period of multiculturalism were actually struggles for equality, not simply inclusion, but inclusion has to be understood as part of the struggle for equality when the system is based on exclusion. And then there's also a recognition that inclusion on its own terms is not sufficient. There's also what we do when people are included. But that's why the issue has to be always a focus on inequality rather than what the configuration looks like in its own terms. Mm. Returning to what you were saying about how the institution has kind of packaged or seen as this fixed a fixed entity which maybe cannot be changed or um its needs met knowledge certainly is seen as something that is fixed and unchangeable how do you think the curriculum could be better decolonized well i think one thing that's instructive here is to look at the way in which feminism has transformed the curriculum to a large extent so if we think back to the 1960s and that was the period when 
increasing numbers of women entered the academy. And on entering the academy, they found that the ways in which gender was being addressed didn't reflect their experiences, their understandings, their knowledges from other contexts and so on. And so one of the first things they did was seek to transform learning on the basis of the different perspectives and experiences that they brought into the academy. But it wasn't simply about adding women into the curriculum. It was also thinking about how taking gender seriously would transform the curriculum in particular sorts of ways. Now, whilst some scholars have called this the missing feminist revolution to the extent that whilst there are certainly courses and modules on gender addressing these sorts of issues, they haven't necessarily affected the degree of transformation that had been expected. And I think that there's a similar sort of issue here in terms of wish to decolonize, that it's an address of the curriculum in its own terms. It's to think about what concepts, categories and paradigms are part of the curriculum, not necessarily just in terms of its topics, but also the very framing of the topics. So, for example, in a politics curriculum, you will usually have conversations about democracy and revolution. Those conversations will invariably focus on the French Revolution and the American Revolution they will not include the Haitian Revolution, or at least not as an equivalent revolution to the other two that brought into being the modern world. So one of the questions we have to ask is, well, what are the silences within the curriculum? What are the events and processes and structures that are not being addressed? And if we think those events, processes and structures are significant, how would the address of them cause us to actually change the curriculum as a whole? So it's not just add, stir and hope for something, but also what does that transformation look like? Yeah, I think, you know, when you were talking, I thought that the example of the feminist intervention in the academy is a really powerful example because the entrance of, you know, when we look at actually how feminists intervened, not just in terms of how gender is talked about in the academy, but also actually made epistemological and pedagogical interventions. You know, if we think about the destabilizing of like the mind-body division, that has transformed so many areas of knowledge production that might not seem explicitly connected to gender, but is very much connected to that feminist intervention. So it's this idea that, yeah, it's not about adding colour and stir. It's also about Understanding that centering coloniality, centering events like the Haitian Revolution fundamentally changes how we think about things like democracy and how we think about these things that on the face of them might not seem as being directly connected to race or coloniality, but are absolutely inflected by it. And I think that is the erasure that has happened that has led to a very specific understanding of how the world has come to be how it is, which has huge political ramifications outside of the academy. And also in terms of kind of can the decolonial demands be met within the university, I think it's not useful to think of it in those terms because of, again, the institutional restraints. I think it's much better to think about how can the struggles happening within the university make shifts within the university that then have impact in the broader world rather than thinking about demands and completion, um, even though it is really important to have specific demands. That's one thing I definitely learned from the Rhodes Must Fall movement, but also about how the struggle itself can have shifts that can be incredibly important in the world beyond the academy as well. Can you think of any examples of that? I mean, because I was going to ask, how far does the struggle go beyond the walls of the institution? In addition to that, yeah, why should people outside of academia um, yeah, care about this? Why is it important? I mean, I think one thing is to think about the fact that calls to decolonise within universities don't exist apart from 
calls within broader society. So the movements that have occurred occur in the context also of wider social struggles. And so why should people outside of academia care about this? Well, I think we have to look again at the role of the university in facilitating debate and providing a space for critical debate discussion. And whilst knowledge isn't only produced within universities, I think universities have a very specific function in legitimating knowledge. To use the example of gender again, it's only when feminists brought knowledge associated with the feminist movement into universities that it was legitimated. That doesn't mean that feminism began in the university or that the struggles associated with feminism began in the university. And similarly with decolonizing the university, there've been there has been anti-colonial critique and decolonizing movements ever since colonization itself as a process emerged 500 years ago. The fact that now there are calls within the institution to directly address some of the particular intellectual movements associated with that should cause us to question what's specific about our time that has the university finally take a much more sustained engagement with these issues when these issues have been talked about amongst others for at least 500 years. Yeah, and I think it's also when certain knowledges enter the university, it also signals to society that these these are things that are worth studying because they tell us something about the world. You know, one thing that came up a lot in the media circus around Roads Must Fall was this idea that studying for non was like less rigorous than studying Kant. Like Kant is like the kind of like canonical philosopher that everyone should should know about and everyone should study. You know, of course, it's self-evident that Kant is foundational to, you know, that it has to be foundational to any kind of modern education. But fundamentally, it's about saying, no, actually, the intellectual contributions that have emerged out of anti-imperial and anti-racist movements tell us something really important about the world. The writings of, for example, W.E.B. Du Bois tells us something fundamental about the foundation of America. The only reason it's not considered integral within our universities is because of racism. When we exclude those knowledges from the university system, we are not being scholarly, we are not being rigorous, we are not working towards our aim of equipping students with tools to understand their world. And also one thing I would say is that when we talk about decolonizing education, I think it's really important that we also expand it beyond just the university, that actually education in secondary schools, education in primary schools is also really, really important because one kind of story that comes to mind is I remember discussing with a kind of neighbour of mine who was actually one of the first people that I ever heard seriously suggest that we should leave the European Union when I was about 12 years old, she said. Um, she's a UKIP voter. And, um, you know, one thing she said to me was, you know, if the countries that immigrants are coming from are so bad, why don't they just stay and make it better? And that, to me, signals that this is someone who fundamentally doesn't understand why the geopolitical power structure, the geopolitical power inequalities that we see in the world have come to be. Because it, it must be from that lack of understanding, that lack of knowledge, that a comment like that can come from. So, you know, we have a British populace right now that does not fundamentally understand what Britain is and how it has come to be what it is today. And that has huge political ramifications when it comes to how we understand things like borders, what the conversation is around migration, what the conversation is around foreign policy. And these are key issues for our time. 
Going back to what you were saying earlier about the issues with not having demands and that kind of thing for Roads Must Fall, what were the main problems that Roads Must Fall encountered and especially in terms of like how the issue was framed in the media, which I know we've touched on briefly. Yeah, so I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this. I've had sort of several years now to ponder on what I think we could have done better. Um, Firstly, I do think it's worth saying that now that I look back on it, I can see the significance of the intervention much more clearly than I did at the time. At the time, I was kind of really frustrated with how I felt like the narrative was out of our control. But now I look back and I think, no, actually making that intervention has had a series of knock-on effects that I'm really inspired by. In terms of how it was framed in the media, I think the main issue was that we got inserted into this broader discourse around safe space politics and around kind of a politics that is based on personal, I don't know if the word's trauma, but something along those lines. You know, and and in a sense, the demand around the statue was very much framed as this idea of the significance of the statue exists insofar as it makes students feel uncomfortable, that this is a matter of students of colour feeling uncomfortable about the statue. Now, obviously, we do feel very uncomfortable about the statue, and I think it's very important how students of colour feel and experience the university. But in a way, that kind of completely effaced the broader political implications of what it means to have a statue of Cecil Rhodes on the building of an institution that is considered to be the centre of, you know, scholarly sort of investigation and that that has a statue of Cecil Rhodes and almost never talks about it and acts like it it doesn't matter, acts like it doesn't have any implication on what happens inside that university. It kind of negated... The, the broader political implications of what it means to not only remove that statue, but have a full understanding of why it's important to recognise how that statue came into being, the backs of what communities, of what societies did that statue come into being, and what we are signalling when we demand for it to be taken down. I think by framing it purely as an issue of welfare, it did kind of gutter of its broader um, political implications. And I think whilst it feels a lot easier to go with the narratives that the media is portraying or to kind of answer questions on the media's terms about, you know, I was relentlessly asked, you know, how do you feel when you walk past the statue of Cecil Rhodes? Um, it's, it's really easy to kind of answer those questions on those terms. But I think what I would say to current movements that are that are bubbling up is nip that in the bud. You don't have to answer those questions on their terms. You can change the questions that are being asked um, or interrogate the questions that are being asked. Also on the question of safe spaces, I think, again, this idea that we are just seeking comfort within a university, it's almost the direct opposite of what we're trying to do. We're actually trying to make people feel very uncomfortable. Um, we're trying to make people not feel able to gloss over and exclude us from the processes of knowledge production. We are absolutely not looking for comfort. We are looking to disrupt and destabilise. And I think it's really interesting that we were the ones who were accused of trying to reshape history or trying to create a safe space, when actually that was very much projection from the political and media class who were very disturbed by the kind of naming process that the movement was engaging in. So, yeah, I think getting bound up in that kind of horrible matrix of safe space politics was something that if we could go back, I would definitely have identified before and sort of tried to 
catch that horse before it left the cart, as it were. Gaminda, you were saying before we came into the studio today that a lot of the times the media only sort of really picks up on these kind of things if it is Oxford or Cambridge that's involved. But have there been any campaigns for decolonisation at other universities that have been more successful that might have had similarities to the Rosemus Fall or that maybe were framed differently but where there has been successes? I mean, one thing that we need to think about here is the way in which the language of decolonising has a particular resonance at the moment. And I don't think it's necessarily the most appropriate term to use when we're talking about the sorts of issues that we're talking about, because there have definitely been movements and campaigns to address various forms of inequalities and injustices. And I think actually that we should think about these issues much more in terms of how do we create a more adequate university? as the beginning point. And decolonising has become a term that people have found it useful to mobilise around. But that does have the danger of effacing struggles that have occurred previously that didn't use that language. So one thing that I can think about uh, directly, which perhaps is not about universities, but about the curricula and and, and school education much more generally, is the way in which Michael Gove, for example, when he was Secretary of State for Education, wished to narrow the teaching of history in schools to what he called our island story. What he was proposing here was that instead of teaching British history in terms of what British history actually is, if you think about it as covering one quarter of the world's earth territory, governing over one fifth of its population and so on, but to reduce the focus of that history simply to what happened on the island. And here, obviously, it's the island, not even including the half part of the island that is Northern Ireland. So there was a real attempt to do this. A number of academic historians came on board with it, but there was a movement against it, particularly by the Black and Asian Studies Association, which argued very strongly that there's no way in which you can teach British history and have an adequate understanding of what Britain is in the present if we don't understand that history of Britain as a global history. And so I think those sorts of campaigns have been very successful in pushing back against that narrowing of history. You know, they may not have been completely successful and and so on, but we have to recognise that these things are not new, that they've been happening in different forms and guises at all levels of the curricula. I guess one area in which curricula is most hotly contested perhaps is, I mean, you've touched on it before, politics, history as well, these kind of subjects, um, definitely a battleground for the perception of whether you can have a sort of positivist view of history and that kind of thing. But curricula are never going to be objective and detached, even if it's not a subject like politics or history, even if it's a STEM subject. What can we learn from what's omitted from curricula? I think questions of curricula are complicated because in a sense what we're asking people to do is that when they take on teaching is to spend time and effort in transforming the curriculum. So you have to also think about the actual practicalities of what teaching constitutes. So when you come into a new university or you start teaching for the first time, you're usually given a module outline of the course that the university would like you to teach. Depending on how much time you've got to transform that module outline, you either do a lot of work to it or perhaps not very much and usually what we end up teaching is what we ourselves were taught so there's an inbuilt process of reproduction to the curriculum that's just part of the normal everyday aspect of what it means to teach to take seriously the omissions and the distortions and the misinformation that's embedded within standard curricula then requires quite a bit of time to address those omissions and distortions and misconceptions and produce a curriculum that, that goes beyond them. 
To give an example, when I first started teaching within sociology, I was given a course to teach on modernity and globalization. And it had the standard topics within it of the Industrial Revolution, the French Revolution, the movements towards democracy and political participation and, and so on. But coming from a background that had also included historical sociology specifically, I was aware that there were gaps within the module and that it wasn't actually the module that I wished to teach in terms of how to teach students about modernity. But how do you then begin to address that? So the first year I did it, I taught the Industrial Revolution and then I also taught colonisation and enslavement. I taught the French Revolution and then I also taught the Haitian Revolution and, and so on. And then the next couple of years I tried other ways and then eventually I ended up remodelling the entire module to be called now Race and the Making of the Modern World because what became clear to me was that unless you give students a different frame within which to view what is understood as standard, then the standard frame will always win out. So no matter how hard I tried to bring in the critical elements to their understandings of modernity, the essays at the end would always be, oh, and modernity is a European phenomenon. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, we've had a whole module here where we've tried to sort of challenge, question and contest this. And this, this was a process that took about five years. So it's not an immediate thing. We can't have these immediate solutions to the problems that we're identifying. They require to be worked out. They require thought. They require engagement. And they require a commitment to wishing to teach differently and to have different content within what is otherwise presented as quite sort of standard. One other thing I'd like to mention here, I mean, I've taught theory for a long time as well. And often in looking at social theory, Reading lists, social theory reading lists are probably the least diverse of any part of the curriculum. In talking to colleagues about how they might make them more diverse or address particular sorts of omissions, the response was always, well, I don't have time to learn about all these other theorists and thinkers. I've only just got on top of Kant, for example, or, or so on. And so then one of the things that I did with a couple of other colleagues was establish a website called Global Social Theory. And what we did on that website was simply bring together short accounts of different theorists from around the world who've engaged in the sorts of issues that most of the standard social theorists have also engaged with, so that it's available there as a resource for both students and teachers to use if they wish to broaden their understandings. Nobody has to use it, but it's there. It's an open access website. It draws its contributors from around the world. People email me and say, oh, you don't have something on X. And I was like, great, write something on it. And we put it up. So that's one way that we've sought to sort of supplement the parochiality of much of the curriculum that exists otherwise. One thing that was quite interesting when I was looking through the book is... Um the role of neoliberalism in all of this. There's the Kahindi Andrews chapter about establishing the very first kind of European undergraduate degree programme in black studies at Birmingham City. He talks about how neoliberalism, because of the removal of the cap on student numbers, perhaps facilitated the, the creation of this programme in a sense. But obviously there are severe limitations to that in terms of how a course like that might be then shaped or narrowed or limited. So I was wondering if either of you wanted to say anything about how the financialization of the university have affected projects of decolonization or, or however you choose to frame it. 
I think the Black Studies programme that Kehinde Andrews and Lisa Palmer and others have set up at Birmingham City University is an excellent initiative. And I think one of the things that is important about it is that it's one of the first, it's not the first, but is part of the institutionalisation of black studies within Britain, which hasn't existed in quite the same way as it has, for example, in, in the US. And why that's important is because hopefully it will allow the establishment of particular types of archives and the consolidation of these sorts of initiatives so that colleagues and future colleagues don't constantly have to reinvent the wheel. One of the things that I think is quite instructive, there was a documentary on last night on BBC4 on black British artists. And there's a whole history of black British artists within the UK whose work and whose lives have just systematically been forgotten and each time you have a black British artist there's a sense that this is the first black British artist that there's been but yet there is a trajectory there is a history there is a genealogy so what would it mean for our institutions to be able to actually acknowledge and consolidate that genealogy so that we're not constantly having to reinvent the wheel so in that sense I think the black studies initiative the most significant aspect of it is the possibility to institutionalize black studies within the UK. Yeah, and I think one thing about the Black Studies chapter in in the book in particular that really reflects what we wanted to achieve with the book, which is really connected to what you were saying, Kaminda, is this idea that, again, the call to decolonise the university didn't begin in 2015. It began many, many years before. And scholars and students and activists have been sort of working in the nooks and crannies of the university and outside the university as well to try and do what, what I would now look at and call decolonial work. And what we wanted to do with this book is to just collate some case studies and collate stories to give the sense that actually we're not just individuals working in our departments or individuals working in different corners of the university, but this is actually part of a movement. And here are some case studies to show how people have done this work in the past, what it's looked like, what its successes have been, what the limitations have been. And I think that Kahinde's chapter is a really great example of going through the process of how something like Black Studies can be established in a British university, what it means, and critically, the limitations or the problems that you face. And Kehinde sort of outlines that really brilliantly in the chapter. And in terms of the question of the financialization of the university... I think it's absolutely central. I don't think that you, you cannot have a decolonized neoliberal university. It's not possible. One thing that often gets forgotten about the Rhodes Must Fall struggle in Oxford is they said we're not even going to have a planned consultation process with students and the community, which is what Oriel had originally committed to. But they actually said, no, we're not even going to have this consultation process. And that the reason that that happened was because donors threatened to withdraw money from the university. So we have a select number of faceless, nameless donors who have literally shaped what conversations we are allowed to have in the university. And given that apparently everyone suddenly really cares about free speech in universities and thinks that the main barrier to free speech in universities are student activists, actually, when we look at what's really limiting the parameters of what we're allowed to do in universities, it's much more about where is that funding coming from? Where is the financing coming from? It's much more of a question of who has the power in the university. It's not student activists. It's the donors. It's the corporations. It's the you know fossil fuel companies that are financing the university because the university is no longer seen as a public institution. 
that reconfiguration of the university is having huge impacts on what kind of knowledge is being produced and what the parameters of the conversation are. Struggles to resist the neoliberalisation of the university are absolutely at the heart of any attempt to decolonise. We have to remember that to ensure that the term isn't co-opted as well, because it is an easy word to co-opt because it's often conflated with diversity, with kind of a particular reductive understanding of what diversity means. Just to add to that, I mean, in terms of financialization, one of the things to remember is that the Roads Must Fall movement in South Africa did transform into Fees Must Fall. And so there was a direct link made there between what the function of the university was and whether it was actually fulfilling that function or not. And I think the issue of free speech is also interesting in this context, because a lot of ink is being spilt at the moment about questions of free speech within UK universities. But there's very little discussion of the number of UK universities who've opened up campuses in countries which actually don't allow free speech. And that's done entirely to increase income for the institutions back home and and so on. And so I think there are much broader questions that we need to ask about that. Attempts to decolonise go beyond higher education. Uh, That's kind of obvious. Are there any particular movements or specific campaigns that you've seen or been involved in that you're excited by that are addressing this same need in other areas? I've had quite a few school teachers actually reach out to me, uh, particularly since the GCSE and A-level curriculums have been changing. School teachers have been reaching out to me, wanting me to help them write courses for students to teach outside of their, their official classes. So I'm hugely excited by that. And how amazing is it to have teachers like that at school? Like Teachers like that can really change sort of students' lives, and particularly in classes where it's predominantly students of colour who are kind of like, wait, you know, the way that my mum and dad and my aunties and my uncles and my neighbourhoods talk about, you know, this period of history is completely incongruent with how you guys are teaching it. And I'm not connecting with this and this doesn't feel scholarly or doesn't feel rigorous. And so giving people that opportunity to say, actually, your hunch is right. Your instinct is right that you're not being taught the full story. And here are some resources that we're going to offer to begin you on that journey. Stuff happening in schools is is really where I'm I'm really interested in that right now. And I think it's a kind of obvious next step for the decolonising education movement. If we think about decolonising education also as a way of providing a more adequate account of our past to be able to understand where we are in the present, then I think the current debates around Brexit are quite instructive to the extent that so much of the discourse around the most important political issues that are facing us in the present are based on an understanding of the past that is just completely inadequate. There's no sense of understanding that the reason Britain looks the way it does is as a consequence of histories of empire and colonisation. That multiculturalism within Britain didn't start in the post-war period with the arrival of the Empire Windrush. The British Empire was already a multicultural entity and so in that sense we need to understand those debates in a much longer history. The fact that in 1948 the British government legislated under the British Nationality Act to give everybody who was a citizen within the UK and its colonies the same citizenship with exactly the same rights. And therefore, the reason why people came to Britain was because they had the right to come and live and work in Britain. And that the, the moral panics that ensued when darker citizens particularly started to come into this country 
were legislated for under the Commonwealth Immigration Acts, which sought to exclude people effectively on the basis of race. So not that we need to understand race in Britain, but we need to understand how Britain itself is a racialized state can only be understood if we were to understand what the history of Britain is. If we could understand that history, understand Britain as a racialized state, then that helps us make better sense of why we have the Windrush scandal, for example, at the moment, of why we have a situation where even though Britain voluntarily joined the European Union and had a referendum just after joining, I think it was about 73% in favour of being in the European Union, that somehow that aspect of being one amongst equals hasn't really sat well with a number of the, the elite within Britain. And so that the wish to leave the European Union, I think, is also as a consequence of that sort of history. Because up until Britain joined the European Union, it had always led whatever transnational organisation it was part of, whether that was empire or commonwealth. The EU was the first time that Britain wasn't leading a collective organisation. It's just hard to understand our contemporary politics without a proper account of our past. We've mostly spoken today about decolonizing within the UK context. We've touched briefly on South Africa and so on. But there's obviously a wider global context here too that the book doesn't address so much. Is there a specific reason for that? One of the things that we wanted to do with the book was to take responsibility for the legacy of colonialism within the global north. So there's always a sense that people in the global south or the places that have formerly been colonised, they can't help but have to take colonisation into account. The interesting thing about Europe and to some extent North America as well is that it often addresses itself as if it's never had this history or that decolonization has no consequence for how it might now have to rethink its understandings of itself or the broader modes of knowledge production. And so in a sense, what we wanted to do with this book was to say, well, if decolonization is a movement that's not just for those who had been colonized, but actually those who had colonized also need to take that seriously, then what lessons, questions, challenges might there be for people within the global north to take seriously in thinking about the institution that they're a part of. And just to go back to something that was said earlier, I don't think that decolonization is something that occurs only within universities or could only occur within universities. But I think it's quite surprising that given that universities are institutions that are supposed to be there to provide a space for critical engagement, that there's been so little critical engagement with that history for what that means for the institution as a whole and the knowledge that's produced and legitimated within it. Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of the myth of the Western university, isn't it? That it's this kind of neutral, objective arbiter of mediating the world rather than it's actually a politically constituted. And in terms of taking responsibility, I think that's absolutely at the heart of what we were trying to do. And, I, and that's relevant in humanities and social sciences. It's also really relevant in uh, STEM departments because it's not like technology and, and science isn't still playing a role in uh, what we can identify as neocolonial relations. If we look at, for example, the fossil fuel industry, the fossil fuel industry relies really heavily on technology and research that is done within the university. It's not an accident that fossil fuel companies make a very concerted effort to finance universities to make sure that people who have sat on the board of big fossil fuel companies then go on to have managerial positions in universities. The fossil fuel industry is almost a direct legacy of colonialism. And so we in 
um, the global north and these institutions that are facilitating neo-coloniality, not just in terms of the stories we tell about the world, but in literally the material technologies that are used to reproduce and sustain what is most certainly a neo-colonial system. So I think understanding ourselves not as just kind of neutral institutions, but absolutely implicated in a matrix of power and questioning how is the research that we're doing implicating the world outside of our university. And I think a lot of universities and scholars are resistant to think about that because we don't we like to think of politics as separate from knowledge. We like to think of ourselves as above the political realm when really we are absolutely implicated in it. So decolonizing the university, the new book is out this month, August 2018. Uh, you can find it online, plutobooks.com, as well as all good bookshops and online retailers. A very big thank you both to you, Dahlia, and to you, Gaminda, for coming on the show today. Uh, it's really good of you. I think the discussion's been very interesting. So do tune in again next month for another episode of Radicals in Conversation. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again then.